Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Hey there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast. I am so incredibly excited to have Liliana with us here today. Um, We are going to be talking about all things bilingual therapy. It is definitely going to be a crash course. We were just talking about this before we started recording and all of the questions that I have for her, like each individual one could be a massive course. So um, Liliana has done a ton of work to kind of distill the most relevant details and give us just a good starting point. Um, But this is definitely, like I said, crash course. Um, But a little bit about Liliana before we dive in. She is a certified licensed bilingual speech language pathologist currently practicing in Chicago, Illinois. She obtained her bachelor's degree in communication disorders in 2012 and her master's degree in speech language pathology at St. Xavier University in 2014. Uh, She has extensive experience serving with the bilingual population, which is why she's here today. Um, And she currently works full-time in a public school setting as a lead bilingual SLP for her district. Um, And she also works part-time in early intervention with bilingual families. Um, And she runs an amazing SLP blog geared towards providing bilingual resources for SLPs and parents. And she also creates bilingual resources and activities on her Teachers Pay Teachers store. Um, so without further ado, uh, welcome Liliana. Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure chatting with you today. Yeah, I am so grateful you are willing to share your time with us. Uh, we've I've been getting a lot of questions from the SLP Now podcast listeners about bilingual therapy. Um, so I'm super excited that you get to share your wisdom with us here. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be able to answer any question that you have today. And before we dive into all of the nitty gritty details, I'm really curious about kind of your, how you, what led you to specialize in bilingual therapy um, and like how you got to where you are today? Um, well, it, it's definitely been a long journey. Um, I would say... It, it really just started like early on when I was trying to choose or pick a career to study, which can be a difficult task um, for most 18 year olds growing up. Um, and at the time, I, I just remember like I wanted to, you know, major in forensic science, but I wasn't sure. I, I also thought about psychology. Um, and I think, you know, my mom played a really huge role in my just decision making and just, you know, her influence. Um, she always urged me to pursue a career in either like the medical or healthcare industry where I can utilize my Spanish speaking skills, um, in hopes that I can make a difference in like the Latinx community. Um, and then, I mean, for this reason, like, growing up in a household where Spanish is the language predominantly spoken, that meant trips to uh, the doctor with my grandmother or making phone calls for my dad in order to interpret for them. Um, so my mother always stressed kind of the importance of being able to 
find someone who's proficient in Spanish um, when going to a hospital or any type of facility. Um, but most importantly, she often stressed that the quality of care and communication improves greatly when you have someone that relates to you on a cultural level. And then that I feel like that statement stuck with me forever. So mo like since the beginning, I just I knew I wanted to work with the Latinx population, with the bilingual population. And at the time, I was actually um, at the University of Illinois um, studying psychology. And I, I just kind of realized that that, that wasn't the career for me. So once again, my mom kind of, you know, urged me, she's like, oh, you should look into uh, speech therapy. You know, it, it sounds like a really great career. So then um, I did my research and switched majors, switched schools. Um, and like I said, from the beginning, I had let my professors know that I really wanted to kind of have a bilingual emphasis with my clinical placements. Um, so that's kind of how I gained experience working with the bilingual population. Um, and then I guess fast forward to once um, I graduated and, and once I did all my clinical work, um, I was like super excited to, you know, finally be on my own and start my career. And I was placed in two schools um, in the back of the yards neighborhood here in Chicago, where 70% of the community are Latinx and um, about 70% of the student population are English language learners. Um, so I was, you know, really trying to, uh, you know, find resources. And I was, I was, I was honestly a really complete nervous wreck my first year. You know, I was trying to learn, learn a ton, ask a ton of questions, make materials, and just overall trying not to panic, um, just because that's when I really realized that resources and activities were very limited in Spanish. So I started, you know, really just creating my own stuff and using my activities in therapy. Um, and then it just kind of took on from there. Then um, I, you know, wanted to share my activities and share my resources with other bilingual SLPs that I know, you know, are, are in the same boat as I am trying to find resources and activities for their specific population. I love that story. Um, and I feel like I just was a little bit similar in that I started with psychology too um, and eventually switched over to speech therapy. Um, I think we made yeah. a really great choice. <laughs> I agree. I think this is an amazing field. And I love how you were able to use um, like your, your Spanish and just your experience growing up to kind of create a really specialized role for yourself and having an impact in a way that um, like a very unique impact. So that's super inspiring. And thank you oh, for sharing. Thank that. you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so now let's get into the nitty gritty content. Um, and I think it'd be helpful to start about just talking about some common myths about bilingualism, because I think that's kind of a good starting point in just making sure we're on the same page. Yeah, of course. Um, so I will discuss some of the most common myths that I have heard over the years while working with the bilingual population. Um, most of these myths I have heard from parents or professionals working in our field who 
may not be necessarily informed about the best current practices in regards to working with linguistically diverse and bilingual populations. So, um, and some of the myths that I will discuss have been debunked by a vast amount of research, which um, I will mention as well. Um, so I would say the first biggest myth is that um, it's on the topic of language confusion. So language confusion is the idea that children are incapable of becoming bilingual without experiencing some sort of confusion. Um, therefore, it's often believed that exposing infants or toddlers to more than one language will cause delays. And currently, there's no research that shows that bilingualism causes language delays. Um, we can expect children to meet the same developmental trajectory as those who are exposed to one language. And this is a quote directly taken from Asha's statement on bilingualism. Um, and then, of course, there's research. There's um, a study done by uh, Dr. Barbara T. Conboy, who's an SLP with um, specialty training in early language and bilingualism. Uh, she completed a, a research study um, in language differentiation in bilingual infants. And overall, her research indicated that children's cognitive systems as early as infancy can handle more than one language without confusion. So um, that myth was debunked by all of the research. Um, and then there another myth um, that's often heard as well is it also goes along with the topic of language confusion. Um, and it's that when children mix their languages, it means that they are confused. Um, so I have heard this concern from several parents of bilingual children over the years. And often the parent will state that he or she heard uh, his or her child say a word in one language and then started to combine words or features from the second language in the same sentence. And now the parent is concerned that their child is confused or not learning each language perfectly. Um, and this is actually an amazing behavior that the parent is observing. It's called code mixing. Uh, which is the use of elements uh, from two or more languages in the same utterance or conversation. So often as children are learning both syntactical systems from both languages, the child may carry over features from one language while speaking. And if the child is still learning both languages, we might hear what may sound like to us as errors, However, when compared to the mainstream language, however, I like to tell parents and other professionals that these are not errors, but instead interesting linguistic patterns, which indicate that the child is really starting to understand and manipulate these grammatical rules from both languages. Um, parents and educators should not reprimand children for code mixing because code mixing is actually pragmatically strategic and grammatically constrained, meaning that it doesn't occur randomly, um, and we know that it's actually rule-governed, um, and often people code mix in a way that respects the grammatical rules of both languages, which is really, really cool. Um, and it also helps to fill le lexical gaps in the child's proficiency um, in the target language, and at times may also reflect the child's cultural and social identity. So code mixing is perfectly normal. Um, and then another big myth um, that I often hear too is speaking 
two languages to a child with a delay or disorder will make them worse. Um, therefore, during intervention and at home, the parent and clinician should expose the child to only one language. And this is probably, I would say, the, the most commonly heard myth um, that I've heard in multiple settings from multiple professionals, including doctors or pediatricians who have recommended that the parents should only expose their child to one language. And often parents of children who have autism are worried that speaking two languages might delay their child's language development or altogether just stop it. And, you know, it is intuitive to think that adding another language may impair their child's language learning systems. But, you know, there's a growing body of research and indicating that children with a wide range of communication disorders are capable of becoming bilingual. And there have been several studies um, on children with Down syndrome, articulation impairments, and autism. And all of these studies have shown that bilingual children's language skills can be comparable to monolingual children with the same impairments. Um, Overall, there's no evidence to support that the idea that being bilingual re will result in additional language delays for children who have language impairments. Um, and we can see this statement supported in research studies um, completed by Gutierrez, Clennon, Wagner, uh, Korkman, Prattis, Crago. Um, there are several research studies that you know have also debunked this myth. Um, a very popular study was done uh, by, that was done was uh, done by Hamley and Faban in 2011, where they compared the social language abilities of three groups of children with ASD from Quebec and Ontario. And in the research study, they had uh, three groups. One was monolingual, one group was si uh, simultaneous bilinguals, meaning that they acquired the both languages at the same time. And another group was uh, sequential bilinguals, meaning that they acquired, um, uh, the participants acquired ling one language first and, uh, and then later the second language. And the researchers examined several language aspects um, in the study, such as social responsiveness, uh, initiation of and response to pointing, uh, attention to voice, vocabulary size, um, and overall, they did not find differences between these bilingual groups and their monolingual peers with um, ASD. And um, we can see similar results in other studies with uh, children who speak English and Chinese. Um, but overall, these researchers found that children with ASD who were simultaneous bilinguals did not experience additional language development, uh, developmental delays. Um, so the findings suggest that children who have autism or Down syndrome are definitely capable of becoming bilingual. Um, and then lastly, um, another big myth is, you know, bilingual children will have academic difficulties and the language of intervention should be provided in the classroom language or the language of instruction, which most of the times is um, here in the U.S. is English. Um, because providing intervention in any other language would not support the student's progress in the classroom. Um, this myth I frequently hear in the school setting, um, especially during IEP meetings or during any meeting where a special education team is deciding types of academic supports that the child will receive. 
Um, I have been in meetings where parents or parent advocates or other professionals will make a case for removing bilingual support or pushing for English only instruct instruction or intervention because English is the language of instruction. And once again, um, this idea that exposing the student to another language will cause the student more learning difficulties or lead to not mastering any languages um, is, is highly believed. So although this assumption may appear valid, um, there is no evidence to suggest that children with severe disabilities are unable to successfully become bilingual. And, um, and this statement comes from uh, directly from a researcher um, by the name of Ohashi. Uh, to, in to 2012, um, there, he uh, did a research study. Um, but you know, overall, restricting language input to one language only may result in negative consequences, which can impact the child who comes from a bilingual environment. Um, we need to think that if bilingualism were too cognitively demanding for children with disabilities, it would mean that children with typically developing language skills would perform below their monolingual peers because of the increased cognitive load of bilingualism. Um, but yet, you know, the research, the literature does not suggest that. And um, we have research that shows that bilingual children can have academic advantages of being bilingual including superior problem-solving skills, multitasking skills, and increased cognitive um, flexibility. Um, and a study by Barack et al. in 2014 called the Cognitive Developmental of Young Dual Language Learners found that overall in the area of nonverbal executive control skills such as memory, Typically, bilingual children showed, showed more advanced skills than their monolingual peers. Um, and then a more recent study that appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times called um, English Language Learners Are Matching Exceeding Other CPS Students revealed that bilingual ELL students met and sometimes surpassed monolingual students academically. So overall, I believe that it is our ethical responsibility as professionals, as SLPs, to educate others about the facts and the research currently out there, because myths like these can have an impact on service delivery, an impact on decision-making in the special education process. And we really must keep in mind that eliminating a child's home language comes with great consequence. Um, it can result in poor language models at home, difficulty with family cohesion or communication and prevent families from passing on their cultural values. So we really must take this into consideration when working with diverse populations. And just ultimately, it's not our decision to make, you know, when it comes to which language the child should be exposed to. Oh my goodness, what an amazing overview. That was, I was, scrambling away, taking notes. There's so much good information there. Uh, thank, thank you so thank much. You. No, no, thank you. I will, um, I could definitely send you um, the research studies um, so that yeah. you can share with the listeners. No, that's amazing. So helpful. Um, and I, the, those are all things that I've heard um, in meetings and everything too. So I think this was a really great starting point and just kind of getting a, all of us on the same page 
on where things stand with bilingual therapy. Um, and so let's just dive into some, and I wish we could talk about this for mm-hmm. a much longer time, but like I said, we're doing crash course today. Um, and I'm, let's start diving into assessment. So what are some, like, let's say we have a bilingual student on our caseload. Um, we want to, like, we're convinced that we're looking at both languages or maybe even more than two languages if they are speaking more than that. Um, but what are some of the best practices for the assessment pieces? Like, where do we want to start with that? Um, so I will kind of outline some really important um, just key features about bilingual assessment. Um, as SLPs who work with culturally and linguistically diverse populations, I would say that foremost, it is extremely important to become familiar with the student's ethnic background, educational background, the student's cultural and dialectal differences prior to your evaluation. Um, you definitely want to use your resources and do a thorough review on pragmatic differences that exist within the student's culture. Um, Portland State University has some really great um, resources. Um, and that's the Portland State University website. Um, and, you know, just the last thing you would want to do or to make is a miss or over identification of a language disorder because of a cultural difference. So. Definitely inform yourself about the student's dialect. Um, For example, there are so many dialects that exist within English and or the Spanish language, for example. And it's not safe or best practice to assume that your student speaks the same dialect as you. Um, I speak Spanish. However, my dialect of Spanish is completely different from a student living in, let's say, the northern part of Mexico. And it is completely different uh, when compared to a student who is from Puerto Rico. Um, and overall, a point that I really want to stress is that we also need to acknowledge the students' linguistic differences and not judge or hold these differences as less or as the substandard when compared to the mainstream language. Um, overall, the SLP that is evaluating or working with diverse populations needs to practice cultural humility in order to best serve these populations. Um, but overall, like, we, we really need to be able to obtain qualitative um, and quantitative information from our evaluation and ensure that we are using a variety of assessment tools to help guide our decisions when assessing diverse populations. Um, we definitely need to uh, you know, use multiple measures, both informal and, uh, informal and formal, um, in order to really obtain the complete picture Um, So you definitely want to do an in-depth family interview. Um, Caregivers can always provide accurate information about a child's communication strengths and weaknesses. um, And, you know, just being able to understand the family's view, which can give us a lot of insight about the child's cultural values, educational status, language use, and communication deficits. Um, We also need to complete thorough interviews about the child's language background use. Um, So this is completely different than the regular interview. Um, This information, the language background use, um, is going to help us obtain knowledge of the student's dialect history, as well as measuring the amount of exposure and usage of the student's language and the communication partners that the student communicates with on a daily basis. Um, It really gives us a lot of good insight to the student's language preference and information about the student's 
acquisition of both languages. Um, so tools that are very helpful for this, um, part of the evaluation are language history questionnaires. Um, some assessments such as the BESA um, already have great questionnaires embedded within the assessment, or you can always um, download a questionnaire from, um, there's a website from the Cornell University that also has a good questionnaire called um, the Multilingual Language Use Questionnaire. Um, which is really great because once again, it really, you know, breaks down all of those questions about language history. Um, but aside from that, too, we we need to use non-standard speech language assessments, pragmatic tests, language samples, or even criterion reference assessments. Um, if formal standardized testing is not available in the child's primary language, um, these tests will help determine the client's understanding and use of conventional language. Um, and just really keep in mind that most, if not all assessments are not always normed on the diverse populations that we work with. Therefore, using scores to justify our decisions is not enough. Um, and I can't stress that enough. The, the most widely standardized language assessments that SLPs use are biased against most linguistically diverse students. So even according to Dr. Kate Crawley, who um, is a well-known SLP researcher, most bilingual students perform poorly on a standardized test, not necessarily because they have a disorder, but because they do not have the same prior experiences as the mainstream American middle-class experiences that form the content of most of these standardized tests. So definitely keep that in mind and keep in mind that it is not appropriate to translate standardized assessments to reach a standard score when you are working with these um, diverse populations. Um, you simply cannot report standard scores when using assessments that are not normed for that specific language. So you start to think, oh, well, if I can't use um, you know, standardized assessments, well, what else can I use? And you know, one of the best tools that you can use is in-depth language samples. Um, honestly, it's the best tool that you can use when evaluating bilingual students. Um, language samples prove to be not culturally or racially biased, and it's considered the gold standard for assessing children's language skills because it honestly is the only assessment measure that captures a speaker's typical and functional language use. And this is a quote directly from Hillman et al., 2010. Clinicians can use um, tools like salt um, and sugar to assess uh, the student's morphology and syntax in both languages, or even obtain language samples with tools such as uh, the slam cards from Dr. Crawley's uh, Leaders Project website. Um, you could download their download them there. Um, they're free. And also just check out the website because it contains great information about working with diverse populations. Um, but she has several tools on there that you can use um, and download to um, so that you can use for your assessment. Um, and then lastly, I would say that dynamic assessment can also be very useful when assessing bilingual children. Um, and for those who are unfamiliar with dynamic assessment, it's a method of assessment which uses a test, teach, retest model. 
And it can help us determine difference versus disorder when working with children that speak another language. Um, dynamic assessment really focuses on the child's ability to acquire the skills after being tested and after being exposed to instruction. And children who are able to make significant changes after short-term learning or intervention, intervention sessions are very likely to have um, language differences and not language um, disorders. So um, overall, that, that's kind of like my outline of things to just keep in mind when you are doing these um, assessments, uh, language samples, interviews, dynamic assessment, criteria, and reference tests. That is another amazing er, overview. Um, I love how you like structured that and it's just, it gives us some really nice action items to kind of look at and compare and see what we're currently using in our assessments and then um, giving us a jumping off point to learn a little bit more. So that is, that is perfect. Um, and I second uh, Dr. Crowley's site is amazing. Um, I love the slam cards and all of the resources she has on there. Um, so that's a really great place to look um, if FLPs are wondering about um, language samples. Yeah, and it, it's a really great, great resource to just also learn more about dynamic assessment because I feel like that's one of the biggest questions that I often receive, um, you know, is how do you do a dynamic assessment or what are the components? Um, so she has great, great resources on the Leaders Project website. Yes. Yeah, we will definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, okay, so let's say we finished our assessment. We did our interviews. Um, we looked at the language background use. We did a variety of different assessments and we're only using norms when appropriate, um, which it sounds like that would be pretty rare in these situations. And we did some dynamic assessment. Um, so how do you go about starting with goal writing um, with English language learners? Like what does that, do you have any like rough guidelines or suggestions for getting started there? Yeah. Um, so figuring out where to start in speech language interventions can be tricky. Um, especially when working with bilingual children. Um, every case is different, um, and I will keep kind of my recommendations a little general because of this. Um, however, one point to always note according to best practices in bilingual intervention and research by Dr. Goldstein, um, who is the author of the book Bilingual Language Developmental and Disorders, um, it is is that it's always easier to start with therapy goals that consist of shared features of both languages um, in order to develop a strong foundation and lead to overall gains in the student's language ability in the first language and in the second language. Um, so basically what that would what that would look like would be, um, imagine you have a student who speaks, um, let's just say English and Spanish, uh, finding shared features between both languages would be um, in the example of, let's say a language goal, um, would be uh, plurals, for example, because plurals exists um, with the final S, adding the final S to nouns, exists in both languages. So that would be a goal that you can address. Um, 
And let's say for the example of articulation, uh, for example, if you're writing a goal for articulation, you would want to, you know, pick target sounds that are also shared amongst both languages. So once again, going back to that English Spanish example, um, some shared phonemes would be um, like the S sound, the M sound. And, you know, you might want to start there when you're writing um, your goals. But in addition, targeting shared features in your speech language goals will really help you avoid writing goals that are dialectal differences, which is not best practice. Um, and once again, it's just really important to become informed about what those dialectal differences are. Um, write goals that consist of shared features of both languages. And then once the student has mastered those goals, intervention can then later address the non-shared features or language-specific features as deemed appropriate. Awesome. And then uh, for SLPs who aren't as familiar with the second language, um, you mentioned that Portland uh, University site here. I'm look, trying to look back at my notes. Yes. Yeah. Portland so, State University. Mm -hmm. Portland State University. So that would be a good place to go for dialectical differences or no? Yeah. So um, the Portland State University website um, has a variety of languages under, I believe it's the multi-linguistic tab that they have on the website. Um, so they list a variety of languages and you could just uh, click on the language that you're looking for and it uh, gives you an overview of like pragmatic differences, just information about the culture, the language. Um, it's very, very informative. Um, I know ASHA as well has a lot of good information on the website on dialectal differences for um, some languages. Um, Bilinguistics has a whole book on uh, different languages and their dialectal differences. Um, so I would, you know, highly recommend checking, checking out those resources um, if you are working with English language learners. And is there an easy, like, are there similar resources to identify the shared features in both languages? Yes, uh, I think, uh, once again, bilinguistics has, um, the shared features within their book. Um, I can't think of the name right now, but they do uh, list out um, kind of this diagram where they show what those shared features are and what um, which features aren't shared as well um, within their resource. Awesome. Yeah, and I so that leads me to a follow-up question too. So we have these resources that we can use um, if we're not familiar with the language um, or, yeah. And so the follow-up question there is, so let's say an SLP is working with a student who speaks Portuguese and she doesn't speak Portuguese. So we, she can do that research and figure out like the shared features, the dialectical differences, all of that. Um, but do you have any other, I mean, ideally the student would have a speech therapist who speaks both um, but do you have any tips or suggestions in navigating that? Um, yes. So, uh, you know, it can be challenging at times, you know, working with uh, or communicating with families who, you know, don't speak another language that, you know, you know, like in that specific case, you know, sometimes you might not always find a Portuguese speaking SLP to help 
you know, that student. Um, I would highly recommend the use of an interpreter if possible. Um, you know, that is best practice is to, you know, provide the student with um, intervention um, in the child's language. So I would reach out to, you know, your admin, your school, if you do come across a situation like that. Um, where, you know, you don't speak the language because in, in that case, like I said, you, you would really need the use of an interpreter. Awesome. And then that leads me to the next question. Uh, so if, so in that case, we'd also be working with the parents. Um, and oftentimes if that's the primary language for the student, then that is also the case, or that can be the case for the parents as well. So do you have any suggestions in providing effective communication um, when the primary languages don't match up? Yeah. So, um, you know, once again, like, um, like I said, it sometimes could be difficult to find, you know, those resources or even the use of an interpreter if possible. I know sometimes that's not the case, um, especially when you want to just be able to send home activities or explain an assignment. Um, so overall here, I would, I'm going to list some tips um, in order to help improve communication with parents. Um, I always ask families about their language preference for activities, meetings, and overall communication. Um, I, you know, highly suggest that, you know, don't assume that because English is their second language that they aren't comfortable speaking it. Um, if they prefer to speak in their first language, um, you know, definitely try to find an interpreter, but that's definitely um, a question to always ask families um, right from the bat is, you know, what their language preference is. Um, definitely get to know the family and their culture. Uh, once again, this is practicing cultural humility and being able to be culturally competent in order to ensure that any activities or materials you provide are, are just appropriate uh, culturally and accurate. Um, let all the students and families know that they are welcome, um, a welcoming environment that ce uh, celebrates students' cultures and um, encourages family leadership, creates a strong foundation for relationships in your practice. Um, and then, you know, use your resources. If a translator is not available to help you translate your materials or instructions on an assignment, you can use Google Translate. Um, it's not perfect. But from experience, you know, parents will tend to appreciate the effort you put into your communication attempt um, in case you really, really need something translated. Um, and then the biggest point, um, I guess my biggest point of advice is, you know, don't cut corners. Um, it may seem very easy to leave out information or feel frustrated that you cannot get your message across um, with ELL families. But, you know, ELL families are legally entitled to information about their child's schooling. And this includes all information about enrollment, parent conference meetings, IEP meetings, and any services that the school provides, such as speech therapy. Um, you know, they have the right to understand this information and have this information in a language that they can understand. Um, ELL parents must have access to the same information as non-ELL parents. Um, and according to 
the U.S. Department of Education, you know, schools must communicate information to limited English proficient families in the language they can understand. They must provide translation or interpretation from appropriate and competent individuals and may not rely or ask students, siblings, or friends or untrained school staff to translate. It's just not sufficient enough for the staff to be merely bilingual. Um, and then another thing to keep in mind, uh, the IDA 2004 mandates that an interpreter facilitates the communication between individuals who do not share the same language, and this includes assessments as well. Um, you know, really keep in mind that sending information home in English will not always ensure that it is read and understood. So I, you know, I want to say, ask yourself, what is your school doing to meet the needs of the current student population within the school? Um, does the school staff reflect the student population? I know sometimes these factors may seem out of our control, but we need to initiate these conversations with our admin at our schools in case you find yourself in a case where you have some students that need that interpretation or need that ELL support. Wow, so many good tips. Um, and I did have a follow-up question too. I mean, we could talk about all of these points for hours and hours, um, but I'm curious if you have any kind of like specific suggestions on um, getting to know the family and their culture. Like what are, can you give a couple examples of like questions you might ask or just how you might approach that? Um, you know, doing, so if it's a student on your caseload, um, it, you would have had to do a background assessment um, or just an, a family interview. Um, as part of the interview, you know, I, I do ask these questions and I, I ask, you know, the families where they're from, um, what language is spoken at home, what uh, information about the dialect. Um, and I, I let them know that it's, it's more so for my assessment um, so that I can really understand, you know, how the child is communicating. Um, so just kind of making that point, you know, really um, straightforward, just saying that it's for the assessment purposes. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm a pretty straightforward person. I, you know, will ask families, you know, about their preferences. Um, I will like I said um, earlier, ask them what language they prefer, um, you know, communication be in. I do, um, in the beginning of the school year, um, I do like kind of a, an activity where we talk about where we're from and and just, you know, just, just to like really get to know one another and um, get to know, you know, my clients and get to know my students so that I can effectively, you know, provide them with um, just, the, the intervention or what the assessments that they need. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, and when you mentioned that, um, it reminded me of an article that um, one of the SLPs in my membership sent me, I think it was, yeah, it was this week. Um, and I just pulled it up real quick. Um, it's about like the title is how to celebrate multicultural diversity in your classroom. So it's geared at teachers, but um, it had a lot of similar things that you mentioned, um, and there are activities to do with students, but some of, I'll just share like one or two of the quick ideas, but they recommend like interview, having the students interview a parent or grandparent to learn more about their cultural heritage, um, or just having, like you said, just 
talking about that in the speech room. Like that's an amazing language activity. Um, so it could kind of give us that information and also be therapeutic. Um, there's also like sharing information about food. That's part of their cultural heritage. Um, and yep. yeah, the blog post has, or like playing music from their culture. Uh, there's just so many different ideas on their great therapy activities also, but they give us some really great information. And I think it's a cool way to celebrate all of the different cultures that we work with. Yeah. Yeah. It, it once again, just ties into um, how I mentioned earlier, just making sure that, you know, your practice, your intervention um, really celebrates and encourages, um, like you said, all cultures within the speech therapy room. And, you know, you're using, you know, materials or tools that are accurate and, you know, represent a variety of cultures or represent the student's culture, because that, that's really important as well. So that the student can also see themselves in, in, you know, the types of interventions that, you know, you're giving. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, and then I'm curious too. So we talked about, um, this is backtracking a little bit, but I'm super curious. So we talked about assessment and we talked about selecting goals. Um, and then I'm curious too, when it comes to the actual, like when it comes to treatment and diving into intervention um, in with your current caseload, I guess might be the easiest way to start talking about it. How much of your intervention is in English versus Spanish? Like, what does that look like? How do you structure that? Um, just like some super, I know that could be like a three-hour course as well. <laughs> but do you have any, I'm just curious to get like a quick snapshot of what that looks like for you with your caseload. Um, well, for me, for my specific caseload, um, and this is, if, if it varies, you know, school to school, SLP to SLP based on their caseload needs. Um, at my school, um, there are two SLPs, myself and my colleague. And um, the way we have divided our caseload is um, she takes um, all of the monolingual students because um, she, she's monolingual. And I take all of the bilingual or predominantly Spanish speaking students. Um, currently on my caseload, I would say 90 or 85% of them, um, the therapy is in Spanish, um, in Spanish only, just simply because I work with a lot of preschoolers. And um, the preschool students often come from environments where Spanish um, is the predominant language at home, and they come into school only speaking Spanish, and they're, you know, acquiring English um, in the school setting. So intervention um, is in Spanish, uh, 100% with them. Um, it really varies. Like, once again, if you are trying to, to decide, you know, what language intervention should be, and once again, you really have to tie it back to your evaluation um, and all of the information that you obtained. Um, it, like I said, if there's cases where, you know, the student's intervention might be in both languages, um, cases where it might be in one language. Um, so it just, it, it's hard to say exactly, but just always keep in mind that you don't want to discount for the student's uh, home environment. If the student is exposed to another language, then um, you definitely, you know, want to use both languages in, in, in intervention. 
Okay, perfect. And thanks for humoring me with that backtrack there. Um, no, I just fine. thought that was, I don't know, I thought that was super interesting to kind of address um, in terms of what that looks like too. Um, so now, circling back yet again, um, <laughs> we were just talking about improving communication with parents um, who like might not have English as their primary language or who prefer to communicate in another language. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned was working with interpreters. Um, and I know you have some really amazing tips to share in terms of how to effectively work with an interpreter. Um, so like for an SLP who maybe hasn't done that or isn't as comfortable um, just from a lack of experience, like what should we definitely consider when we're working with those? Yeah. So um, when, so not, not necessarily in the school setting, um, I have worked with interpreters because like I said, most of my caseload has been, uh, Spanish, predominantly Spanish speaking, um, which I mean, I speak, however, in the early intervention setting, I have worked with interpreters. Um, so I have been able to, you know, kind of gather all of these tips just from my experience. Um, and also from just reading, you know, research articles. But um, I, when I was in early intervention, I worked with several families who, um, who spoke Arabic um, and I had to work with um, in interpreters in, with, with all of these families. So um, I'm, I'm just kind of going to go over the tips that, you know, I think are really, really important that I want to highlight. Um, and the first one being that, you know, you really have to make sure you have access to a licensed and certified interpreter. Um, it it kind of goes along with the statement again, that just because you know, you're bilingual uh, doesn't mean that you can translate uh, or interpret, I'm sorry, interpret um, everything adequately. Um, so you wanna make sure that the interpreter is licensed, certified, um, you know, inadequate interpreting skills can definitely hinder the communication process. So make sure that your interpreter is proficient in both languages, uh, that they can convey meaning and understand linguistic variations of the particular language um, that you are working with. Um, make sure that they are familiar with your field's terminology. Um, that one is super, super important. Um, and also ensure confidentiality and discuss it with the family as well. Um, and and also I would I would highly you know recommend that your interpreter is also very culturally aware. Um, once again, it's important just you know because someone speaks the language doesn't always guarantee that they understand the culture. Um, so uh, you know when I was working with these families, there was a lot of things that um, at first that I didn't know about um, the, the family specific culture. Um, even though I had, you know, done my research, I had, you know, read uh, several articles, but there was just so many things that I still had to learn. Um, things from like, you know, taking your shoes off uh, when, you know, you enter the, the, the family's home. Like that was, that was the big one for, for me as well. Um, so, you know, just making sure that your interpreter can also help you with these questions and just kind of guide you with their own experiences um, is, is really important. Um, and then one big point, too, is preparing before the session. Um, that one is a huge one. So 
um, back when I was working with uh, an interpreter, I would always meet at least an hour before the session, or if if you can't, you know, do it the same day, but definitely plan meetings prior to your session so that you can discuss um, once again the terminology, the process, um, everything that you know you're going to be doing that day, what you want him or her to say, or how you want him to say it, um, is really really important. So just preparing, um, you know, before the the session, and you know, once you are in your session. Um, I would highly recommend that you just you talk to the family and describe what the roles are, you know, describe how you're going to be the one working with the child. And the interpreter really just kind of serves as your voice, um, you know, to communicate with the family. Um, always address the parent. Um, that one's a big one, too. Um, and not the interpreter. So that one can seem, um, I want to say, it, you almost do it uh, unconsciously when you want to communicate and you turn to look at the interpreter, but you re you really want don't want to hinder your relationship with the family. So looking at the family as you're talking and not the interpreter is a big one. So making eye contact. Um, and like I said, the interpreter just kind of serves as your voice. And that is that's it. Like you're you're still communicating with that family. Um, remember to. Also take pauses. Um, and I also know this from experience just because, like I said earlier, I I have interpreted for my family before. Um, and if you're talking too fast, you can miss, you know, really important details. Um, so really take pauses as you are, you know, talking to the family, making sure that everything's getting interpreted. Check for questions. Always, um, I like to ask the families, you know, questions, backup questions to make sure that I understand, I understand that they understood uh, what I was saying. Um, remember to also take note of like the nonverbal language. Um, you know, I like to make sure that I'm looking once again at the family directly. And if I notice any type of kind of like non-verbal um, language, like facial expressions. Like I kind of like to ask questions just once again to make sure that they understand understood what I am um, talking about. Um, and then, you know, don't also avoid, avoid oversimplification of diagnosis or recommendations. I, I think that's a big one too. So a lot of times you want everything to get interpreted, you know, correctly. Um, and you try to uh, word things in a way where you you might want to make it more simple so that it gets communicated across sim more simple. But, um, you know, don't, you know, oversimplify way too much to, you know, be really straightforward as well with your recommendations. Um, and and yeah, I would say that that's those are kind of the big tips that I would uh, recommend. Oh, and well, I almost forgot one last one. Um, deep, uh, debriefing. That's, that's a big one too. Um, after each of my sessions, I would debrief, debrief with the interpreter at the end, just to make sure that, um, their observations were the same as my observations and things were, um, you know, interpreted correctly. Or if I missed anything, any concerns that the parents said, or, you know, a question that the parent might've had, um, you know, cause when you're in the session, you know, everything can move so fast. Time goes by so fast. Um, so, you know, always just kind of comparing observations at the end, debriefing at the end with the interpreter is, is a key as well. 
Wow, lots of great tips there. Um, I so appreciate it. Thank you, Liliana. No problem. Um, okay, so that brings us to the end of my content question list. Um, and I know we talked, we touched on a lot of different topics today. Um, so where, if um, SLPs want to learn more and kind of hear more about what you do, where can they find you? Um, well, definitely on, on social media. Um, they can find me on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, always feel free to you know reach out, send me a message. Um, I am currently working on my website. And it is up right now, but it's under construction. Um, but I do have a website uh, called bilingualspeechy.com where I do post um, several of these resources that I have mentioned, tips um, on bilingualism. Um, so definitely there as well. And um, but yeah, just you know, feel free to reach out to me on social media if, if anyone has has questions. Awesome. And then any like parting words of wisdom or advice or just like the one like if SLPs walk away with one thing today, what would you like emphasize? Huh, if SLPs could walk out with <laughs> um, bilingualism does not cause language delays and use multiple measures when assessing ELL students, multiple measures, not just standardized assessments. Yeah, perfect. Um, and I, I definitely have like a list of probably like 100 different takeaways. So hopefully people <laughs> walk away with more than that. But it's always interesting to hear like what stands out to the presenter. So um, that was so incredibly helpful. Thank you. Um, and then if SLPs are wanting to access any of the links that we mentioned, including Liliana's um, social media handles and some of the research articles and the blog posts and all of that, um, you can go to slpnow.com slash 54. Um, and that's a wrap. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.